Chapter Thirty Two of the Doctor's Wife by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsten Weber. Chapter Thirty Two. I'll not believe, but Desdemona's honest. See that some hothouse grapes and a pineapple are sent to Mr. Gilbert at Greybridge. Roland said to his valet on the morning after Isabel's visit. I was sorry to hear of his serious illness from his wife last night. Mr. Lansdale's valet, very busily occupied with a hat-brush, smiled softly to himself as his employer made this speech. The master of Mordred Priory need scarcely have stained his erring soul by any hypocritical phrases respecting the Greybridge surgeon. I shouldn't mind laying a twelve months wages that if her husband dies, he marries her within six months, Roland's manservant remarked, as he sipped his second cup of coffee. I never did see such an infatuated young man in all my life. A change came over the spirit of Mr. Lansdell's dreams. The thought, the base and cruel thought, which had never entered Isabel's mind, was not to be shut out of Roland's breast after that midnight interview in the library. Do what he would, struggle against the foul temptation as he might, and he was not naturally wicked, he was not utterly heartless, he could not help thinking of what might happen if, if death, who carries in his fleshless hand so many orders for release, should cut that knot that bound Isabel Gilbert. God knows I am not base enough to wish any harm to that poor fellow at Greybridge, thought Mr. Lansdell. But if— And then the tempter's hand swept aside a dark curtain, and revealed a lovely picture of the life that might be, if George Gilbert would only be so obliging as to sink under that tiresome low fever, which had done so much mischief in the lanes about Greybridge. Roland Lansdell was not a hero. He was only a very imperfect, vacillating young man, with noble impulses forever warring against the baser attributes of his mind, a spoiled child of fortune, who had almost always had his own way until just now. "'I ought to go away,' he thought. "'I ought to go away all the more because of this man's illness. There seems something horrible in my stopping here.' watching and waiting for the result, when I should gain such an unutterable treasure by George Gilbert's death. But he lingered nevertheless. A man may fully appreciate the enormity of his sin, and yet go on sinning. Mr. Lansdell did not go away from Mordred. He contented himself with sending the Greybridge surgeon a basket of the finest grapes, and a couple of the biggest pineapples to be found in the Priory hothouses, and it may be that his conscience derived some small solace from the performance of this courtesy. Lord Reesdale called upon his nephew in the course of the bright summer morning that succeeded Isabel's visit to the Priory, and as the young man happened to be smoking his cigar in front of the porch at the moment when the Earl's quiet cob came jogging along the broad carriage drive, there was no possibility of avoiding the elderly gentleman's visit. Roland threw aside his cigar, and resigned himself to the prospect of an hour's prosy discussion of things in which he felt no kind of interest, no ray of pleasure. 
what was it to him that there was every prospect of a speedy dissolution unless there almost always was every prospect of a dissolution unless something or other took place but nothing special ever seemed to come of all the fuss and clamour the poor people were always poor and grumbled at being starved to death the rich people were always rich and indignant against the oppression of an exorbitant income tax poor roland behaved admirably during the infliction of his uncle's visit and if he gave vague answers and asked irrelevant questions now and then lord reesdale was much too engrossed by his own eloquence to find out his nephew's delinquencies roland only got rid of him at last by promising to dine at lowlands that evening if there's a dissolution our party must inevitably come in the earl said at parting and in that case you must stand for wareham the wareham people look to you as their legitimate representative i look forward to great things my boy if the present ministry go out i've been nursing my little exchequer very comfortably for the last twelve months and i shall take a furnished house in town and begin life again next year if things go well and i expect to see you make a figure in the world yet roland and in all that interview lord reesdale did not once remark the tired look in his nephew's face that nameless look which gave a sombre cast to all lansdell's portraits and which made the blasé idler of thirty seem older of aspect than the hopeful country gentleman of sixty roland went to lowlands in the evening why should he not do this to please his uncle inasmuch as it mattered so very little what he did or where he went in a universe where everything was weariness he found lady gwendoline in the drawing-room looking something like marie antoinette in a demi-toilette of grey silk with a black lace scarf crossed upon her stately shoulders and tied in a careless bow at the back of her waist mr raymond was established in a big chintz-covered easy-chair turning over the boxes of books newly arrived from london and muttering scornful comments on their titles and contents at last he exclaimed as mr lansdell's name was announced i've called at mordred about half a dozen times in the last two months but as your people always said you were out and as i could always see by their faces that you were at home i had given up the business in despair lord reesdale came in presently with the times newspaper open in his hand and insisted on reading a leader which he delivered with amazing energy and all the emphasis on the beginnings of the sentences dinner was announced before the leader was finished and mr raymond led lady gwendolen to the dining-room while roland stayed to hear the thunderer's climax murdered by his uncle's defective elocution the dinner went off very quietly. The Earl talked politics, and Mr. Raymond discoursed very pleasantly on the principles of natural philosophy as applied to the rulers of the nation. There was a strange contrast between the animal spirits of the two men who had passed the meridian of life, and were jogging quietly on the shady slope of the lull, and the dreamy languor exhibited by the two young people who sat listening to them. George Sand has declared that nowadays all the oldest books are written by the youngest authors. Might she not go even farther, 
and say that nowadays the young people are older than their seniors? We have got rid of our spring-heeled jacks and John Mittens, and Tom and Jerry are no more popular, either on or off the stage. Our young aristocrats no longer think it a fine thing to drive a hearse to Epsom races, or to set barrels of wine running in the haymarket. But in place of all this foolish riot and confusion, a mortal coldness of the soul seems to have come down upon the youth of our nation, a deadly languor and stagnation of spirit, from which nothing less than a Crimean war or an Indian rebellion can arouse the worn-out idlers in a wearied world. The dinner was drawing to a close, when Lord Reesdale mentioned a name that awakened all Mr. Lansdell's attention. "'I rode into Greybridge after leaving you, Roland,' he said, "'and made a call or two. "'I am sorry to hear that Mr. Gilmore, Gilson, Gilbert, ah, yes, Gilbert, "'that very worthy young doctor, whom we met at your house the other day, "'last year, by the by, egad, how the time spins round. "'I was sorry to hear that he is ill, low fever, really in a very dangerous state, "'Saunders, the solicitor, told me.' "'You'll be sorry to hear it, Gwendolen.' Lady Gwendolen's face darkened, and she glanced at Roland before she spoke. "'I am sorry to hear it,' she said. "'I am sorry for Mr. Gilbert, for more than one reason. I am sorry he has so bad a wife.' Roland's face flushed crimson, and he turned to his cousin as if about to speak, but Mr. Raymond was too quick for him. "'I think the less we say upon that subject, the better,' he exclaimed eagerly. "'I think, Lady Gwendolen, that is a subject that had much better not be discussed here.' "'Why should it not be discussed?' cried Roland, looking, if people can look daggers, a perfect arsenal of rage and scorn at his cousin. "'Of course we understand that slander of her own sex is a woman's privilege.' Why should not Lady Gwendolen avail herself of her special right? Here is only a very paltry subject, certainly, a poor little provincial nobody. But she will serve for want of any better. Lay her on the table by all means, and bring out your dissecting tools, Lady Gwendolen. What have you to say against Mrs. Gilbert? He waited, breathless and angry, for his cousin's answer, looking at her with sullen defiance in his face. "'Perhaps Mr. Raymond is right, after all,' Gwendolen said quietly. She was very quiet, but very pale, and looked her cousin as steadily in the eyes as if she had been fighting a small-sword duel with him. "'The subject is one that will scarcely bear discussion, here or elsewhere. But since you accuse me of feminine malice, I am bound to defend myself.' I say that Mrs. Gilbert is a very bad wife and a very wicked woman. A person who is seen to attend a secret rendezvous with a stranger, not once, but several times, with all appearance of stealth and mystery, while her husband lies between life and death, must surely be one of the worst and vilest of women. Mr. Lansdell burst into a discordant laugh. "'What a place this Midlandshire is!' he cried. And what a miraculous power of invention lies uncultivated amongst the inhabitants of our country towns. 
"'I withdraw any impertinent insinuations about your talent for scandal, my dear Gwendolen, for I see you are the merest novice in that subtle art. The smallest rudimentary knowledge would teach you to distinguish between the stories that are ben trovato and those that are not. Their being true or false is not of the least consequence.' Unfortunately, this Greybridge slander is one of the very lamest of canards. A newspaper correspondent sending it in to fill the bottom of a column would be dismissed for incompetency on the strength of his blunder. Tell your maid to be a little bit more circumspect in future, Gwendolen. Lady Gwendolen did not condescend to discuss the truth or probability of her story. She saw that her cousin was ashy pale to the lips and she knew that her shot had gone home to the very centre of the bull's-eye. After this there was very little conversation. Lord Reesdale started one or two of his favourite topics, but he understood dimly that there was something not quite pleasant at work amongst his companions. Roland sat frowning at his plate, and Charles Raymond watched him with an uneasy expression in his face, as a man who is afraid of lightning might watch the gathering of a storm-cloud. The dinner drew to a close, amidst dense gloom and awful silence. Dismally broken by the faint chinking of spoons and jingling of glass. Ah, what funeral bell can fall more solemnly upon the ear than those common everyday sounds amidst the awful stillness that succeeds or precedes a domestic tempest, there is nothing very terrible in the twittering of birds, yet how ominous sound the voices of those innocent feathered warblers in the dread pauses of a storm. Lady Gwendolen rose from the table when her father filled his second glass of burgundy, and Mr. Raymond hurried to open the door for her. But Roland's eyes were never lifted from his empty plate. He was waiting for something. Now and then a little convulsive movement of his lower lip betrayed that he was agitated, but that was all. Lord Reesdale seemed relieved by his daughter's departure. He had a vague idea that there had been some little passage at arms between Roland and Gwendolen, and fancied that serenity would be restored by the lady's absence. He went twaddling on with his vapid discourse about the state of the political atmosphere, placid as some babbling stream, until the dusky shadows began to gather in the corners of the low, old-fashioned chamber. Then the earl pulled out a fat, ponderous old hunter, and exclaimed at the lateness of the hour. "'I've some letters to write that must go by tonight's post,' he said. "'Raymond, I know you'll excuse me if I leave you for an hour or so. Roland, I expect you and Raymond to do justice to that Chambertin, Charles Raymond muttered some polite conventionality as the earl left the room, but he never removed his eyes from Roland's face. He had watched the brewing of the storm, and was prepared for a speedy thunderclap. Nor was he mistaken in his calculations. "'Raymond, is this true?' Mr. Lansdell asked, as the door closed upon his uncle. He spoke as if there were no break or change in the conversation since Mrs. Gilbert's name had been mentioned. "'Is what true, Roland? This dastardly slander against Isabel Gilbert? Is it true? Pshaw! I know that it is not. But I want to know if there is any shadow of an excuse for such a scandal. Don't trifle with me, Raymond. 
I have kept no secrets from you, and I have a right to expect that you will be candid with me. I do not think you have any right to question me upon the subject, Mr. Raymond answered very gravely. When last it was mentioned between us, you rejected my advice, and protested against my further interference in your affairs. I thought we finished with the subject then, Roland, at your request, and I certainly do not care to renew it now. But things have changed since then, Mr. Lansdale said eagerly. It is only common justice to Mrs. Gilbert that I should tell you as much as that, Raymond. I was very confident, very presumptuous, I suppose, when I last discussed this business with you. It is only fair that you should know that the schemes I had formed when I came back to England have been entirely frustrated by Mrs. Gilbert herself. I am very glad to hear it. There was very little real gladness in Mr. Raymond's tone as he said this, and the uneasy expression with which he had watched Roland for the last hour was, if anything, intensified now. Yes, I miscalculated when I built all those grand schemes for a happy future. It is not so easy to persuade a good woman to run away from her husband, however intolerable may be the chain that binds her. These provincial wives accept the marriage service in its sternest sense. Mrs. Gilbert is a good woman. You can imagine, therefore, how bitterly I felt Gwendolen's imputations against her. I suppose these women really derive some kind of pleasure from one another's destruction. And now set my mind quite at rest. There is not one particle of truth, not so much as can serve as the foundation for a lie, in this accusation. Is there, Raymond? If the answer to this question had involved a sentence of death, or a reprieve from the gallows, Roland Lansdell could not have asked it more eagerly. He ought to have believed in Isabel so firmly as to be quite unmoved by any village slander. But he loved her too much to be reasonable. Jealousy, the demon, closely united as a Siamese twin to love, the god, was already gnawing at his entrails. It could not be, it could not be, that she had deceived and deluded him, but if she had, ah, what baseness, what treachery! Is there any truth in it, Raymond? he repeated, rising from his chair and glowering across the table at his kinsman. I decline to answer that question. I have nothing to do with Mrs. Gilbert, or with any reports that may be circulated against her. But I insist upon your telling me all you know, or if you refuse to do so I will go to Lady Gwendolen and obtain the truth from her. Mr. Raymond shrugged his shoulders, as if he would have said, All further argument is useless. This demented creature must go on to perdition his own way. You are a very obstinate young man, Roland, he said aloud and I am very sorry you ever made the acquaintance of this doctor's wife, than whom there are scores of prettier women to be met with in any summer's day walk. But I dare say there were prettier women than Helen, if it comes to that. However, as you insist upon hearing the whole of this village scandal, which may or may not be true, you must have your own way, and I hope, when you have heard it, you will be contented to turn your back for some time upon Midlandshire and Mrs. George Gilbert. I have heard something of the story Lady Gwendolen told you at dinner, and from a tolerably reliable source. I have heard—what? 
that she that isabel has been seen with some stranger yes with whom when where there is a strange man staying at a little rustic tavern in nesborough hollow you know what gossips these country people are heaven knows i have never put myself out of the way to learn other people's business but these things get bruited about in all manner of places roland chafed impatiently during this brief digression tell your story plainly raymond he said there is a strange man staying in nesborough hollow well what then he is rather a handsome-looking fellow the flashily dressed a londoner evidently and but what has this to do with mrs gilbert only this she has been seen walking alone with this man after dark in nesborough hollow it must be a lie a villainous invention or if if she has been seen to meet this man he is some relation yes i have reason to think that she has some relation staying in this neighbourhood but why in that case should she meet the man secretly at such an hour while her husband is lying ill there may be a hundred reasons mr raymond shrugged his shoulders can you suggest one roland lansdell's head sank forward on his breast no he could think of no reason why isabel gilbert should meet this stranger secretly unless there were some kind of guilt involved in their association secrecy and guilt go so perpetually together that it is almost difficult for the mind to dissever them but has she been seen to meet him cried roland suddenly no i will not believe it some woman has been seen walking with some man and the greybridge vultures eager to swoop down upon my innocent dove must have it that the woman is isabel gilbert no i will not believe this story so be it then answered mr raymond in that case we can drop the subject but roland was not so easily to be satisfied the poisoned arrow had entered far into his soul and he must needs drag the cruel barb backwards and forwards in the wound not till you have given me the name of your authority pshaw my dear roland have i not already told you that my authority is the common greybridge gossip i'll not believe that you are the last man in the world to be influenced by paltry village scandal you have better grounds for what you told me some one has seen isabel and this man who was that person i protest against this cross-examination i have been weak enough to sympathize with a dishonorable attachment so far as to wish to spare you pain you refuse to be spared and must take the consequences of your own obstinacy i was the person who saw isabel gilbert walking with a stranger a showily dressed disreputable-looking fellow in nesborough hollow i had been dining with hardwick the lawyer at graybridge and rode home across the briar gate and hurstonleigh road instead of going through waverley i heard the scandal about mrs gilbert at graybridge heard her name linked with that of some stranger staying at the leicester arms nesborough hollow who had been known to send letters to her and meet her after dark heaven only knows how country people find out these things but these things always are discovered somehow or other i defended isabel i know her head is a good one though by no means so well balanced as it might be i defended isabel throughout a long discussion with the lawyer's wife 
but riding home by the Briarsgate Road, I met Mrs. Gilbert walking arm in arm with a man who answered to the description I had heard at Greybridge. When was this? The night before last. It must have been some time between ten and eleven when I met them, for it was broad moonlight, and I saw Isabel's face as plainly as I see yours. And did she recognize you? Yes, and turned abruptly away from the road into the waste grass between the highway and the tall hedgerow beyond. For some moments after this there was a dead silence, and Raymond saw the young man standing opposite him in the dusk, motionless as a stone figure, white as death. Then, after that pause, which seemed so long, Roland stretched out his hand and groped among the decanters and glasses on the table for a water-jug. He filled the goblet with water, and Charles Raymond knew by the clashing of the glass that his kinsman's hand was shaken by a convulsive trembling. After taking a long draught of water, Roland stretched his hand across the table. "'Shake hands, Raymond,' he said in a dull, thick kind of voice. I thank you heartily for having told me the truth. It was much better to be candid. It was better to let me know the truth. But, oh, if you could know how I loved her, if you could know. You think it was only the dishonorable passion of a profligate, who falls in love with a married woman and pursues his fancy, heedless of the ruin he may entail on others. But it was not, Raymond. It was nothing like that. So help me heaven, amidst all selfish sorrow for my own bitter disappointment, I have sometimes felt a thrill of happiness in the thought that my poor girl's name was still untarnished. I have felt this, in spite of my ruined life, the cruel destruction of every hope that had grown up out of my love for her, and to think that she, that she who saw my truth and my despair, saw my weak heart laid bare in all its abject folly, to think that she would dismiss me with the schoolgirl speeches about duty and honor, and then, then, when my grief was new, while I still lingered here, too infatuated to leave the place in which I had so cruelly suffered, to think that she should fall into some low intrigue, some base and secret association with—it is too bitter, Raymond, it is too bitter. The friendly dusk sheltered him as he dropped into a chair and buried his face upon the broad cushioned elbow. The tears that gathered slowly in his eyes now were even more bitter than those that he had shed two months ago under Lord Thurston's oak. If this sort of thing is involved in a man's being earnest, he had not need be in earnest about anything more than once in his life. Happily for us the power to suffer, like every other power, becomes enfeebled and wears out at last by extravagant usage. If Othello had survived to marry a second time, he would not have dropped down in a fit when a new Iago began to whisper poisonous hints about the lady. "'I never loved any one but her,' murmured Roland Lansdell. "'I have been a hard judge of other women, but I believed in her.' "'My poor boy, my poor impetuous Roland,' Mr. Raymond said softly. "'Men have to suffer like this once in a lifetime. Fight it out, and have done with it. Look at the foul phantasm straight in the eyes, and it will melt into so much empty air. And then, being gone, 
you are a man again. My dear boy, before this year is out, you will be sipping absinthe, most abominable stuff, after supper at the Maison Dorée, and entertaining your companions with a satirical history of your little caprice for the doctor's wife. And heaven forgive me for talking like Major Pendennis or any other wicked old worldling, Mr. Raymond added mentally. Roland Lansdell got up, by and by, and walked to the open French window. There was a silvery shimmer of moonlight upon the lawn, and the great clock in the stables was striking ten. "'Good night, Raymond,' said Mr. Lansdell, turning on the threshold of the window. "'You can make some kind of apology for me to my uncle and Gwendolen. I won't stop to say good night to them. But where are you going?' "'To Nesborough Hollow.' "'Are you mad, Roland?' "'That's a great deal too subtle a question to be answered just now. I am going to Nesborough Hollow to see Isabel Gilbert and her lover.'" End of chapter 32 Recording by Kirsten Weber